Hello, how's it? Welcome to Liberty and Friends. That's right. That's the podcast hosted by Moa, your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. And um, yeah, I'm a proud association of the Institute of Race Relations, who of course are my partners and friends. Um, guys, welcome to the show. Uh, we have a very jam-packed show for you and very interesting guests. But before I get to that, let me give a quick shout-out to the Frederick Nauman Foundation, who are our proud um, partners on the show. Thank you so much, guys, for showing so much love. Um, and yes, let's do things for the freight or for the freedom. Um, as I said, I've got a very interesting panel, a new face that we have in here. We've got Mr. Jeremy Nell, best known as Germ, the cartoonist. Germ, how are you doing, Holmes? Very well. You? A ta-da. Welcome to the Big Liberty Show And of course a face that you guys are uh, well aware of And I hope you enjoyed the last debate he had with us In that rumble in the liberal jungle uh, Mr. Gabriel Krauser, welcome back, how are you doing? How's it, Sitle? Hey, tada, brother man And of course, um, as I introduced him on the Daily Friend I'm sure he's anticipating it The head honcho himself El jefe um, <laughs> Franz Cronier Franz, how are you doing? Well, Sichler. Excellento. Guys, welcome, 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 welcome. Um, let's jump straight into it. We have had a bumper roller coaster week. New data has come out, new reports have come out, and essentially those are the two areas we're going to pivot around, and of course a conversation on BEE. But let me not be cryptic, let me get into the detail here. Guys, the Land Advisory Panel, the uh, supposed expert to uh, Ramaphosa, Mr. New Dawn himself, uh, picked released their report. France, what did that report look like? Yeah, Is it the reform report? Look, it's 140 pages, so it takes some uh, wrestling to get uh, acquainted with it. We're in the process of that. I was briefed this morning by Anthea Jeffrey, who's our colleague who's very good at these things, and it's, it's not very good at all. Um, we think it opens the way to practically any expropriation law across any asset class in the country. It dispenses with the idea of market value uh, for transactions. It gives officials extreme uh, subjective decision-making powers. For example, it proposes a thing it calls a compensation policy, right. uh, where, where in a normal economy, a compensation policy is a buyer and a seller who, who negotiate and think of a price. Here, from zero compensation to, to market-related compensation under subjective uh, uh, circumstances such as whether you need the property and what you do with it. Uh, Jeffrey sums it up best, in fact, at the end of a piece that's uh, the fuller version of which is going to appear on The Daily Friend shortly, where she writes as, as follows. That overall, she says, the panel's report reflects an infinite belief in the benevolent power of the state mm. to direct and control the economy and people's lives. Yet any automatic belief in the efficiency, wisdom and probity of government is dubious in many countries. To maintain such a belief in South Africa is astonishing, mm. she says, which it is. For here, pervasive state incompetence, callousness, venality and corruption are glaringly apparent. Expand the powers of the state in the ways the panel proposes, and these core characteristics of ANC rule will quickly spread into the spaces provided. Inform yourselves, read the Daily Friend, be very cautious of what's passing as analysis of this panel in the mm. mainstream media. It's getting it flat wrong, including what should be respectable publications. And we will in due course do a lot more on it. Uh, AgriSA, to its credit, has put out an alternative report. They mm. refuse to sign uh, the document. The only two panel members who've ever 
sort of pull the calf from its mother on a windswept plane on a freezing free state night have said it's a lot of nonsense and will never work. They put out their alternative report. We're going to do the same, in fact. Yeah. And we're going to put out a second alternative report about how it's possible to effectively deal with questions of land reform That's right. by using extended property rights and extending those rights to people who haven't enjoyed the benefits before. And that you can all look forward to from us over the weeks that lie ahead. Of course, absolutely. And France, of course, is alluding to The Daily Friend, our sister channel here at The Big Liberty Show. And you can find all their writing um, most of the panel here are writers and analysts on there um, on, the, the, excuse me, the Daily Friend website. Um, that's dailyfriend.co.za. Um, I'm going to bring you in here, Gabriel, because there, there is a point that Ooh France was bringing up here, which is super important. It's this weird notion that the state should become this almost parental figure over what is essentially millions of South Africans who are have every bit of agency uh, as the next person. Uh, why? Why is this the ideology that we often rail against? Yeah, I think it really is. And uh, look, there's some sweet science to it. Uh, Tata Mandela, this grandfatherly figure, it starts getting a seriously worrying when you talk about Mama Madiba, <laughs> Winnie Madikizela Mandela, mother of the nation, uh, and they've both passed away. And now we have sort of the state, the ANC mother and dad to all of us who without them wouldn't be able to wipe our own noses it seems um and really the panel you know if you if you if there are moments in the panel's report that just make it seem like not only do they think the state has to do more or less everything but they also don't understand what a free market is that's right I can point to a, a couple of moments. One that glaringly stands out is that the panel report does acknowledge that corruption exists. But what is the first kind? They identify five kinds of corruption. The first kind of corruption they call pure market opportunism. That's a direct quote. And what they call explain it, they say bribery is pure market opportunism. Wow. The state giving the land that it's taken to the wrong people, misaligned beneficiation, they call that pure market opportunism. So if we make this a bit concrete and we think of the Frieda Dairy Project where millions, tens, twenties, hundred million rand is supposed to go to giving, uh, to, to buying cows for poor black farmers to then be able to, once they've got them, mm -hmm. tend their own stock, kill them and eat them all overnight if they mm. feel like it, or prudently, hardworkingly grow their, their brood. Instead, the money goes to the Gupta family and they have a nice wedding. This is called by the panel <coughs> pure market opportunism. The panel doesn't understand the first thing about what a market is. That's right. A market, a free market, is not something where there's no government at all. A free market is a situation in which people can transact, where buyers and sellers can negotiate prices and transact without there being forced that the mm. one can go to the other. I can't go with a gun to your head and say, I'd like to buy your house for five rand, please, otherwise I'm going to shoot you in the brain. That's not a pure market transaction. Mm. It's not a pure market transaction when the government comes with the full might of the army and the police and the SARS behind it and says, we are going to take your farm and then we're going to give the proceeds, we're going to take your taxes and then we're going to give the proceeds of those taxes to the Guptas instead of to the Freda beneficiaries. That's not a pure market transaction. That's statism at its worst. Absolutely. Um, Morris, I'm going to come back to you, Jim. I want to bring in just now, um, you know, th th there's something deeply concerning by a gaggle of well-intended advisory panelists, if you will, who, by all, by all uh, uh, evidence, 
happen to believe in this notion of the new dawn and the new wave, then in the very same breath, in the very same report, advocate for the same nonsense that has been, um, you know, the sort of policy approach that has disenfranchised the poor in this country. Where is this reform that we're supposed to be having um, in South Africa, France? When is it coming? I don't think it's coming anytime soon. I don't think it's coming out of the ANC. I don't think it's coming out of Mr. Ramaphosa either. Um, we, we're starting to reach quite a useful point in all of this where uh, the, the economy of a country will, as a rule, reflect the policy environment around it. It's like the scoreboard. Look at the scoreboard and uh, you see who's winning the game. Now, in recent weeks, the following has happened. The IMF has downgraded its uh, growth outlook uh, for the country. It's cut its outlook, in fact, in half from what it was eight months ago. Uh, Fitch has changed its outlook on the rating to negative. There have been some changes inside Moody's, and those changes will see Moody's, I think, uh, change its outlook to negative, mm. uh, setting up a downgrade. Then all three of the big ones put us at junk. Junk's not the end of the road, by the way. Mm-hmm. There, there are many basements. Uh, uh, ratings are like a, an office building. You get the ground floor, your investment grade, then you can go up from that and you can also go down into the basement. That has occurred. Uh, the business press reporting this morning on, on foreign investors fleeing the JSE. A prominent property economist uh, reports in the last week that there are now more homes for sale or being sold uh, by people immigrating, leaving the country than the number of foreign buyers. And this in the same week when the same panel proposes uh, restricting, stopping effectively property sales to foreigners, mm. which is, is more of the madness. Now, none of this is, it's all in the short and immediate term a terrible thing. A jobs numbers uh, yesterday, mm. 29%. Uh, a, a, a chap in the office here said they obviously haven't properly implemented the minimum wage because no. if they had, the number would now be over 30%. Mm. All of it terrible in the short term. Not what the New Dawn advocates were promising and not what the New Dawn believers were expecting. But if you take a slightly longer-term perspective, it's not a bad thing. Because hard reality is beginning to dawn. The consequences of the decisions taken by people who advocated certain policy positions are playing out. Mm. This is not a question of the global economy sinking us again. Emerging markets this year are going to grow at rates of just under 5%. We're going to grow at one-tenth of that rate. Our growth rate is going to be a fraction of the country's budget deficit. Pressure builds reform. And there is an opportunity in all of this, and an opportunity that we as a group want to exploit, which is that I think we've got to a point as a country we're simply warning about the misguided consequences of policy doesn't actually have an effect. The Mm -hmm. ideologues want to see for themselves. We can now begin to demonstrate the consequences of being a country that hikes the costs of employing people in the face of structural youth unemployment. Mm. We can demonstrate the consequences of being a a country that threatens to take your investment away if you invest in the South African economy. We can demonstrate the consequences of being a country that sets conditions on investment. You may come, but you've got to jump through all these racial hurdles Mm. and loops. And if you don't want to do that, go away and go somewhere else. And people tend to follow that advice. So um, a dire position, terrible policy advice. That momentum continues. Land panel, such a good example of it. However, consequences are being felt. Mm. And if you exploit the consequences properly, 
you've got the beginnings of what, what becomes real reform, although that's not going to come out of the ANC anymore. Mm. Colleagues, I'm going to bring in a, a another topic here, which France has really sort of touched on. The economy right now is in a shambles. And the hard reality is there are 10 million South Africans who are not earning an income. And because of that, cannot build savings. And with no savings, you cannot buy options for yourself and your family, whether it's better health care, better safety and security, all the things that we in the middle class um, pay to avoid having to deal with the state in, uh, in that regard. A breaking point is coming. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it looks like. But at some stage, and France makes the point, um, it's at that point of the crisis, at that point of the crescendo of it, when there is a need for um, the strongest injection of public opinion around what reforms are required. Gabriel, I'm going to start with you. Um, top three reform areas that we must now actually begin to implement if we turn, if we're to turn the tide. Yeah, so I would say that the first one really is to expand and strengthen property rights uh, at the level of paper. Yep. So you've got 17 million South Africans living without title deeds because they're living in the former Bantu stands. I'm one of them, or my family. Yeah, and it's crazy, it's, it's, it's insulting, as we discussed earlier, that the land panel sort of, uh, it mentions some private title deeding, but it also goes into elaborate detail of... Uh, uh, traditional leaders complaints about how they think this is going to erode the culture and how uh, research is referenced that sort of suggests that poor black people don't have the intellect uh, to be able to manage their own lives and manage their own stuff. What well, we call that soft bigotry, essentially, of, of low expectations. The soft bigotry so of low like expectations. somehow can't manage themselves. Yeah. We have no agency, according to some of our leftist academics. So the first thing is to turn that around at the level of paper, and it's registering things in the cadastre, registering title deeds in the cadastre or long-term leases. The second thing, in my opinion, has to be property rights in the deeper sense, because the, a title deed is just a promise from the government that yes. they're going to defend you if someone else wants to come and take it <coughs> uh, without your agreement. Now, what, how does the government uh, defend us as property holders, uh, whether it's the five rand in your pocket or it's a house? Well, with the police force. Mm -hmm. I think South Africa doesn't stand a chance of going forward with some kind of really deep, substantial police reform. And the Institute of Race Relations, one of the things that we recommend is that people get allowed to elect their own uh, sheriffs, elect their own police. This uh, is, of course, just very briefly in our Broken Blue Line report, which you can find on the IRR website. Yep. Yeah. So uh, uh, without, a, without a credible police force, uh, a title deed doesn't actually mean anything because you can be burnt out of your home, which Absolutely. we've discussed before. Yep. And... Uh, and uh, you, uh, I, I suppose th it's hard to choose the third yeah. um, because there's such a long list. But I, I suppose my inclination is, is to suggest that either the ANC uh, or if it's impossible for the ANC to do it, the broader political class needs to come to terms with the idea of taking responsibility, hmm. identifying the mistakes that have been made that have led us to this place. Because if you do that, then everything else sort of follows from there. But that third step is is is, is not, in my opinion, being taken whatsoever. You know, a, a one small little exemplar of this is the land panel report comes out. It totally defrays or recommends the defraying of property rights in South Africa. Hmm. Um, it writes a blank check for expropriation without compensation. 
And yet the Business Day, which really should be a very credible publication in this country and that has a strong history, it puts out the billboard that says La- uh, land panel affirms property rights. Mm. So that's a failure to connect the dots. And what France is talking about when he says this crisis is coming and, and, and that can be a good opportunity, that's if people are informed. That's if people sort of understand because we did this, that's happening. So the third <coughs> step has to be connecting those dots and 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 and. and Cutting through the nonsense that people try to create to obfuscate the connections between those yeah. dots by putting out fake news. France, I'm going to come to you. Germ, I will come to you. Don't get me wrong. Um, top three reform agenda. Because as we speak, France, people are leaving this country. They Practically, number one, uh, property rights. Yep. If you're not assured that you will uh, uh, get back the uh, benefits of your investment, you're not going to invest, the economy can't grow, jobs can't be created, we can't recover. This is not about farmers. It's pensioners and their pensions. It's doctors who are going to lose their their practices. The property rights are like being pregnant. You can't have them in some – you can't be a little bit pregnant. You either have property (laughs) rights or you don't have property rights. And when you begin to erode property rights, listen to Dr. Jeffrey's uh, warning that I read out earlier Mm. about the insidious creep of all of this, Mm. like an octopus with all its tentacles, will extend to wherever there's wealth to be extracted. Number one, if you invest in South Africa, your investment is safe. Number two, abandon the racial basis of policy. Absolutely, and we'll get to that. Empowerment policy is important, particularly given our history. But the beneficiaries must be selected on the grounds of actual established socioeconomic disadvantage, not on the grounds of race. In our case, many of the beneficiaries will be black, but they'll be beneficiaries not because they are black, but because they are poor, a Mm. profound but fundamentally important distinction upon which hangs the entire liberal tradition. And number three, hard one, is uh, deregulate the labor market. Absolutely. Price poor people into jobs so that they get the chance to get on the ladder. And even if they earn very little, if they work really hard, they have the chance to learn the skills to fight their way up the earnings ladder. I've had this debate with a number of people, advocates of much stronger protection and the like, and I've ended it every time by saying you can go on and on about that, and minimum wages and the like, but then you must own the responsibility mm for the fact that we are a country in which an extraordinary number of young people will never know the dignity Mm. of going out and using their skills, whatever those are, their impetus, their hard work, to improve their own lives and look after their families. And there's no no middle ground here. It Mm. is that or our proposal, one or the other. Mm. It is a choice that can be made. And we need to make that choice in favour of poor people. Jim, a very funny thing happened this week, and I sort of made mention of it on on my social media, that when the jobs numbers, the unemployment numbers came out on Monday, I believe, um, and we we, we realised, or we saw, excuse me, that we have reached record levels of unemployment, 29% unemployment, the official rate, of course, Um, the expanded having another 10% on it. You would have been lucky to spot one leftist ideologue on social media at that time. They seemed to just disappear. Yeah, and you know, what's what's fascinating for me is that we sit here, we actually know how to fix it, okay? Um, but the political world clearly is not there. Yep. Um, and I'm guessing it's because um, it's it's too ideologically driven yep. um, and, and not pragmatically driven. And this is what I try and represent in my work. I try and ridicule that. Mm. Um, and, and here's the weird thing. 
is that the, a lot of the feedback is good, but a weird amount of leftist, uh, particularly leftist feedback, seems to uh, suggest that I'm being uh, bigoted by by criticizing the minimum wage. Mm. It, it's the strangest thing for me because how can you how can you build um, how can you build a working class by putting a barrier to entry mm. on what they can earn? It's very weird. Like things like non-racialism, building a market economy that encompasses all property rights for all, are now considered right-wing fascist nonsense on online. Gabriel, yeah, I think that's true, and it's and it's and it's uh, it's very unfortunate. It's also entirely predictable. Yeah, when people have really bad ideas and those bad ideas play out, and then they st- and they stop working, then you look for any kind of excuse that you can possibly make, and shooting the shooting the messenger, denouncing the critic, going sort of playing the man, not the ball when it comes to these ideas mm. is a very typical move. If I can say something about about the minimum wage, there is there are I think that there are two fundamentally different ideas about what the dignity in work means. The one uh, can be, con- you can say, uh, decent work or dignified work. To test whether it's decent or dignified, you have to see how much does the person get. Can they sustain a middle-class lifestyle? If not, then it's not decent work. So someone who's working in a factory and is not and is only making enough to live in a very small place and, and, and yep. doesn't get to go and watch the movies every Saturday, yep. that's not decent work. That's an idea. There's another idea about the dignity of work. And this idea, is, it's a very old idea. It says that the dignity of work is that you get to add more value than you extract. Mm. Now, in any open labor market, what's going to happen is that the people, laborers are going to be adding more value than they get back. That's why the thing is sustainable. That's how economies grow. And there's something, there's something dignified. There's something almost spiritual about being able to put into this world more than you take out. And if, unfortunately, the way it works, and I still know this because I'm still in my 20s, if you are unskilled, then it is very hard to add so much value that you can take back less of that and that less is still enough to live a middle-class lifestyle. So typically people start out by adding very little value and Mm -hmm. they get less than that back, but then over time they learn to add more value and more value and they're always getting back less than that, but that less becomes middle-class. And that idea of dignified work is, is the opposite of dignified work is a sinecure is a job that you have where you're extracting a salary, but you're not adding any value. And this is exactly what we have in ESCOM, for example, and so on and so forth. Can I add, sorry, Just can very I? briefly, on this issue of value, I want to shape this conversation because Gabriel wrote a piece um, that I want to segue to. Uh, Gabriel, you wrote a very instructive piece on BE, and you raised a lot of the irony to BE and how it just doesn't add value. Yeah. And in the second instance, rewards those who are actually quite well looked after already mm-hmm. in society. Quick uh, recap of that, and then I'll open the co- conversation. Yeah, I think BEE, I, th- I think, t- I, I imagine, I think in that piece, a conversation being had between people in 1994, kind of trying to broker the new South Africa, trying to understand what the rules of the game should be. Mm. And I see on one side, someone saying, look, we need to go for the free market option. You need to let people sort of try by their own means to add more value than they're getting back. And as time goes by, racist companies, racist managers, racist purchases, they are eventually going to cost so much to themselves that they're going to be cost out of business and you're going to have a very rainbow looking South Africa, but it's not going to be driven by the target of rainbowism. Rather, it's going to be driven by the target of each individual trying to add more value than they get back and trying to add the most value that they can so that they get back something that gives them the opportunity to live a middle class life. And on the other hand, you have a person who say, we can't do that. This country's been so racist for so long. There's so many bigots that, it, that, that poor black people are never going to get a proper foothold. 
And then I can imagine them saying, okay, well, let's try your way. Let's preference black people. Let's have quotas. Let's see how it's going to go. And let's have a conversation again in 25 years. And here we are 25 years later. And what has happened? We have an economy that grew for a while. And then as soon as there was some sense of alarm, as soon as there was a bit of a shakeup, both in the world economy in 2008 and in our domestic policy, mm -hmm. there was a shrink. There was a clutch of the state trying to grip more towards itself. And that has seen a shrinking of the economy, a shrinking of opportunities. All at the same time as the establishment of a new black elite, there are 40 or 50,000 high net wealth individuals in this country. That means people who are dollar millionaires. Mm -hmm. More than half of them almost certainly are not white. So what you have now, I paid a visit to Hilton recently, is a school that is at least half not white. Mm -hmm. And uh, similar things can be told about various private schools around the country. If you look at the elite sort of people going once they've got their degrees in South Africa to, to, to polish themselves off overseas, or you look, look at my friendship circle sort of guys who get to take a gap year off overseas, most of them are black. Mm -hmm. And wonderful that their parents are paying for them to have the opportunities to do these awesome things. But now you've got a situation where not only has BEE shrunk the economy and, and chased away foreign investors, but also from the next generation, this 25 years is over, the next generation, if we keep going on with this, the only people that are going to be able to benefit from it, more or less, are going to be people who are black, connected, well-educated, have grown up with a silver spoon in their mouth, and that is exactly the kind of thing that started to happen towards the end of apartheid, that started to make that system inefficient, corrupt, that start, and it's and not just in South Africa, in every country, once you once you get to the point where the reality is on the wall, yeah. where you start seeing that things aren't working, and the denial kicks in, this is just this is elite capture at a gargantuan stale, scale, and you end up kind of basically stealing everything. Uh, sorry, can sorry, I, Jim, yeah, I've, yeah. Just got a, I've just got a wonderful anecdote uh, about the minimum wage. Just for the, for, you know, the, the conversation before that, um, a few years ago, the South African mainstream cartoonists uh, got together um, in a WhatsApp group, a literal WhatsApp group, not a metaphorical one, and started chatting about creating a cartoonist union in which there there would be a policy document that would suggest uh, minimum rates that cartoonists around the country would charge. And most of the mainstream cartoonists agreed <coughs> to this. I opposed it, and I said, I don't want to be part of any of that. I want to create my own uh, worth. Um, I don't want somebody else to dictate to me what the value of my work is and, and, and thus affect my own credibility. This, of course, was met with uh, some sense of, of, uh, of aggression, and uh, they threw their sort of collective arms up in the air and said, oh, well, okay, you, you, you're you now breaking the system and all that. Yes, the irony, though, I've made a career out of opposing um, a minimum wage, a barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. I create what I believe is is my worth. That's how I've made my career. And yet, ironically, numerous numerous cartoonists are struggling. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I can understand the mentality of wanting that minimum wage, but you have to think beyond that. And that's what I discovered for, my, for myself. Franz, I'm looking at you. I'm sure you have a lot to chip in. Um, yeah. I mean, the other side of that, of course, if you don't like where this is going, you need to be a very skilled population. Yeah. Uh, we are still in a position where less than 10% of people over the age of 20 have a university degree. And amongst black South Africans, less than half over the age of 20 have uh, reasonable at all, even by our standards, um, as a country, as a department of education, passing matric. 
which means that the other avenue out of this to become a sort of highly skilled fourth industrial revolution kind of tech economy, we become the service provider to Africa. That that avenue is shut off to us yeah. because it's going to take a, a long time, a generation at best if you start now, to improve the skills profile of labor market entrance. So you, 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 you checkmate yourself time and time again yeah. on this labor uh, market and minimum wage debate. Mm. There is, in fact, no option left in the strategic environment if you want to improve the levels of absorption of young people in jobs other than by pricing them into the labor market mm. by reducing the regulatory constraints on people who might employ them. Mm. Guys, I'm going to do last thoughts um, for everybody. And Jeremy, I'm going to begin with you because there's very interesting uh, tidbits that I want you guys to sort of leave us with here. Um, I want to come back to the BE conversation because it's very instructive insofar as how a, a poor South African somewhere in the middle of nowhere, whether it's Emapumulo, like where I'm from, or that sand dune in Cape Town, that example France and I always um, harp on about, and I'm sure our viewers have, haven't heard about that guy in a while. Um, but both of those individuals who live in those desolate parts of our country have no sense of hope around there being some form of reform that gets them into the economy. That first step in, no matter how meager it looks to you and I in the middle class, but a first step into the economy. Um, what do we need to do uh, to essentially get those guys into the economy, getting an opportunity at rising up, building income, savings and options? Uh, well, from my experience, um, and being the highly respected analyst that I am, <laughs> um, I, I would suggest that uh, people use the opportunity to state-proof, to, yep. to create, to be entrepreneurs, to create their own uh, mini or micro-economy. Um, don't rely on the government because they're not there for you. Um, that, I think, is, is, is a very small but mm -hmm. and subliminal pressure but it would suggest, I think, in the long term, that then people become more reliant on themselves and less on the state. Mm -hmm. uh, Gabriel, uh, yeah. wh what does that guy need to do? What are the reforms we need to see? Yeah, I mean, so for reforms, I, 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 I think I'll speak at a sort of slightly meta level. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, there, whenever there's a problem, there's two kinds of solutions. There's the one that sounds nicest. Okay, there's high black unemployment, and there's and there's a and there's a lot of black poverty. So what we need to do is uh, make every company hire lots more black people and make them uh, pay them at a at a at a very high minimum wage rate mm. at least. That sounds so nice because if 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 only it were possible, if this would sort of suddenly unlock lots of 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 prosperity. There's the nice sounding solution, and then there's a solution that takes more time. There's a solution that is bound by reality rather than fantasy. And it's a solution that is always going to depend on individuals being part of the solution themselves and not being totally taken care of mm. by big mama Africa. Mm. And when hearing those two kinds of solutions being offered, I think South Africans need to, need to listen very carefully 
to the former and, and, and wonder whether what's going on is that the person providing the solution is saying the easiest thing to get likes for themselves, mm. to get celebrated themselves, or whether they really are involved in the business of trying to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Because the kind of allegations that get thrown against Germ and, and lots of South Africans who, who, who lampoon the left, these allegations of bigotry and racism and not really caring, it sounds often to me like what's going on is 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 people trying to create a South Africa in which the competition is to sound like you care the most, mm. and not a South Africa in which you really care the most. And sometimes, really caring the most means means be, it always means being realistic. Mm -hmm. Franz, I'm going to bring it to you. I come at it from a different angle, so bear with me for a moment. Yep, freedom of speech. Yep, and thought—that's the answer. Noam Chomsky uh, said that the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion <coughs> and then to encourage vig very vigorous debate within that spectrum. <laughs> and if you look at our attempts to empower poor people, the victims of our racist past, mainstream empowerment policy is, is, is race-based. Mm -hmm. How to do the only debate on empowerment is how to do BE better. There's no debate on empowerment policies that might be better than PE. Mm. And the reason is that the constraints of debate is that policy must be race-based. If, if you exceed those bounds, then immediately you become a racist like Jeremy. Mm. No. <laughs> if you therefore concede that the policies that South Africa has over 25 years, Gabriel reminds us, used to empower poor people, have essentially failed to do so, yeah. and that new policies are necessary, you will not get to those policies, you will not find them, identify them, interrogate them, or test them, unless you're able to break the constraints of what is seen as acceptable opinion. Mm. And for that reason, until bold people are able to inspire others to speak out beyond the constraints of acceptable opinion... I'm afraid that the people you reference mm. are actually likely to remain in a position where their expectations of improving living standards in a future South Africa are unlikely to be met. And that's why we bang on about stuff, Absolutely. like freedom of speech here. Mm. Businessmen often don't understand it. They, well, why can't you go and see the president and tell him that you should do this with the law or something of that nature? It's, it's, it happens and it's important. But there are much deeper, important principles that are the basis of successful and free societies. And one of those is freedom and speech and thought. And not just because it's nice, mm. but because without it, you are never able to interrogate early on counterproductive policies and replace them with better ones. And we here, and the story Gabriel tells is so good, are becoming a case study of exactly that problem. Mm. Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much. Um, we're going to wrap it up over here. And just a final thought on, on what France was actually saying, because it really speaks to what I'm trying to achieve with the show and, of course, with you guys. Um, guys, you can get any single one of us on here um, to come out to your part of the world. And it is as simple as just popping uh, me an email at bdl at thebiglibertyshow.com. And I will come out to your neck of the woods uh, at no charge. And um, I deliver a short briefing, a 20-minute briefing that speaks to exactly some of the issues that we've been discussing here. 
as to how we got ourselves into a mess as a country, um, the threats that you face to your life, your liberty and to your property, and how you can begin to get involved in the battle of ideas and to fight back. These are the issues that I think you need to be armed with, whether it's you and your family or your friends, um, in beginning to assess your role in building the sort of South Africa that is property-owning, liberty-leaning, and free for everybody. Um, so you can do that, of course, as I always say, by just popping me an email or an inbox on any of my social media, and we'll come out to you and your part of the world and have that conversation. Um, and as always, I encourage you to support the work that we do at the IRR and all my friends and colleagues over here. We're wholly dependent on you, and you can support us, of course, by becoming a friend of the IRR. How do you do that, you ask? Well, you can SMS your name to 32823. Your SMS will cost you one rand, terms and conditions to apply, and it's that SMS um, which essentially allows you to be able to pledge 90 rand a month towards our work. And if you don't like SMSs, I'm also a bit new school and hip, find us online at irr.org.za forward slash join and you can sign up a monthly debit order there guys remember we have shaken up how we put out our shows um all shows have times now just look for that video on my platform where i explain all the uh, times this show will come out today at um five o'clock guys thank you so much for watching we'll see you next week <laughs>